Hi, and welcome back to episode 10 of the Stanford Political Journal's podcast, The Axe and Politics. I'm Kayla. I'm Lucas. And I'm Rory. And this week we have a great episode for you guys. Um, I did an interview with John Lancaster Finley and Brandon Hill. So after a bit of commentary, we'll let you guys hear that. Yeah, so let's just jump right into some national news. Or you want to start us off? Yeah, I think something big that happened in the last week, or it was about exactly a week ago, was the Nevada State Convention for the Democratic Party. And at that convention, Bernie Sanders' supporters were pretty upset at the rules for disqualifying about 60 of their delegates for not being... I mean, I think pretty upset is a bit of an understatement there. Yeah. Uh, so about 60 of their delegates were disqualified for not uh, being, being registered, registered Democrats, Democrats for a Democratic primary convention. Yeah, it seems, seems strange. Seems like a pretty straightforward rule. Rule. But they took that anger out in some pretty uh, pretty bad ways. They they threatened and sent they'd sent death threats and misogynistic hate mail to the chairperson of the convention for doing the disqualification, even though she was following rules agreed upon by both parties beforehand. And they they booed speakers, including Barbara Boxer. And in a fit of anger at the end of the convention, when they had to rush to vote on a platform for the Nevada State Party, Democratic Party, to put forward to the national convention, they voted against everything that the Hillary Clinton delegates voted for, just to spite them. Including campaign finance reform yeah. and overturning Citizens United, which is you know, obviously one of Sanders' big, big talking points. And that's pretty ironic, considering the thing that Bernie Sanders says now is besides the trying to become the nominee, he's trying to influence the platform. And when his own supporters are uh, taking their anger out for him not being the nominee and moving the platform in the wrong direction... I think that's that's not a good sign, and uh, and it's hurting Hillary, quite frankly. It is, yeah, and um, you know, this is. I don't know if Sanders's newfound resolve is at all linked to this, but he has sort of developed this. Um, he seemed to be sort of mulling along the campaign trail, and now he's reinvigorated himself. He's campaigning more aggressively. He demands a fourth and final debate with Hillary Clinton before the June 7th California primary. He's being more combative about her ties to Wall Street rather than her ideological positions. You know, he's trying to pressure the Democratic Party itself into reforming the way it conducts its primaries, the and way it holds pressure, his, Yeah, You mean he's calling everyone corrupt, yeah. basically, which I think is an odd way to get them to like you, um, to call them corrupt and then say that the only way that I can win the nomination is if you actually pick me with the superdelegate process. And so we'll see it's, what happens. And it's interesting and it's, it's somewhat concerning too because to to sort of feed into this sense that, that Clint has this, you know, this not legitimate win, which it, it's a completely legitimate primary win. But, you know, many Bernie Sanders feel that uh, Clinton did not win this primary fairly and um, he hasn't explicitly gone against that and he hasn't explicitly affirm that, but by not telling his Sanders, that's his, his supporters, that that's not the case, you know, it only feeds into Trump rhetoric. It arms Trump for the upcoming general election against her. Um, because again, we've, and it's definitely not the case that she has far more actual voters supporting her. She is the more popular candidate. Like by, she just is like by, and by any rules you could come up with, she would still be winning. And so it's dangerous that, Bernie yeah. Sanders is propagating this myth that the Democratic Party is corrupt. Yes, they may be corrupt, like in certain ways, but they are not yeah. fixing this election. Like, let's not, yeah, like, let's not be. I mean, to be quite frank, there are a lot of things wrong with the way primaries work in general for both parties, and I mean for the Democratic Party too. You saw the controversy in New York earlier in the campaign with you know the fact that voters had to be registered with the party months in advance. Um, with Arizona, yeah. with the waiting lines for yeah, and these are legitimate problems, but they're not. They don't. They don't determine the election. No, um, in no. any sense. And you know, Trump's anti-establishment rhetoric. Hillary Clinton is very much everything Trump's been campaigning against this election. And Bernie. And Bernie as well. And so, again, he's feeding into that Trump rhetoric, and again, just arming him with more weapons to 
it, it'll be interesting. And it's also interesting that he's still also another myth that he's putting forward is that he still has a chance. He doesn't. And Hillary Clinton is going to win this election. She's about 93 delegates shy of clinching it, which requires less than, less than I think, 25% of, or less than 30% of California's delegates. So if, even if Bernie Sanders beat her in a whopping defeat of 70-30, she would win the yeah. primary. Yet Bernie Sanders is acting like if he wins 51-49, he's on the track to challenging her at the convention. And, uh, right, and to be clear, like what Bernie Sanders did this campaign season is like nothing short of remarkable. I mean, he complete he invigorated a brand new force in the American electorate and the Democratic Party. He brought out a lot of voters who were just not coming to the polls before; they're now coming, um, and that's always something you want to see. And it's been great, but now he's got to find a way to adequately translate all this political revolution talk into things that can help both his party and both. Uh, you know, what and he stands movement. for and his movement, maybe go down the ballot to some congressional elections. It doesn't have to stop. The road does not end when Bernie Sanders loses for the political revolution. It, didn't, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. And he's just got to, once he comes to terms with that, then I think he can continue to have very meaningful impacts both on the general election and um, congressional elections and in just the future of American governance. The way he's going, though, doesn't seem to be yeah. down that pathway. Yeah. And that's what a lot of Democrats and the party are afraid of. Yeah, especially with, you know, we see Trump gaining in national polls. Yeah. He's polling very high. Some polls have him even a 5%, 5% lead, lead yeah, over just, Clinton. Just, just a couple of days ago or yesterday, uh, Rasmussen polling showed that he's leading. Trump is actually leading by five points right now. And while polls right now are certainly not reflective of yeah. what people will vote in November, this is the same thing that happened in the Republican primary, was Trump was leading early on, and people said, don't worry so much, he'll, something will happen and he'll eventually fall. And that never happened. Yeah. And so Democrats just shouldn't be complacent. Yeah, it's key that Democrats begin acting now. But again, it's hard, especially for the Clinton campaign, to start acting now when they still have to deal um, with this. The primary. Yeah. Yeah, she's battling two fronts right now, and and we'll see how it goes. This this is going to be a landmark election. Yeah. In campus news, we had our very own uh, op-ed published in the Stanford Political Journal on uh, Professor Kumar's denial of tenure, and that received over fifteen thousand views our worldwide. Most article of all time. You know, global audience attracted mm -hmm. to this kind of stuff. Um, and and I think it's had. Uh, it's made a, it's made a, an impact on campus. People, there was a protest linked to the uh, op-ed that happened the, that same day, and it got it got widespread attention. And I think nobody, I don't think anybody expects anything to happen regarding the specific person involved, Professor Kumar. But I think it brings to light some problems with educate the education system regarding uh, you know, area studies, area studies, what it means to sort of delve into it, whether it's about ideas or just simply covering area. I know the, I mean, we obviously encourage you to read the op-ed. It talks about a lot of these issues very well, but... It's on our homepage right now, stanfordpolitics.com. As for the other publication that we don't really like to talk about, but they do influence campus a lot, is the Stanford Review. And they published quite the upsetting article uh, about a week ago uh, encouraging encouraging Stanford students and Stanford not, government not to work so hard to get people to vote not to register voters not to to even if you're just a student here not even to bother voting like what's the point it basically said it so the article is called don't get out the vote and it outlines reasons basically about how uh, your vote isn't going to be the one that Determines, determines the, the election. election. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because there are... It, the article ignores some, some larger arguments about voting. People don't necessarily vote because they think they determine elections. Um, in political science, people call this the D-term, which is, you know, we have our sense of civic duty, this sense of politics as sport where we want to see our team win, so we go out and support the team. And, and um, not voting is basically like a collective action problem. It is, yeah. It's like recycling. Yeah. Like, the, <laughs> like one commenter on the article even wrote that Oh, so is this the same as, like, I shouldn't bother recycling that one bottle because that's 
not Pointless, that plastic yeah. isn't going to be the plastic that stops like global warming or that kills mm-hmm. or that stops the right. And then you know, and when you have when you're discouraging these, typically you know, people who are discouraged to vote are those who actually have mixed views on a lot of things. So you allow ideologues and and partisan you know, really partisan extremists to sort of hijack the political process yeah. and control the election and control the primaries. And then when people do have to vote in the general election, then, you know, maybe they're not faced with the, the best candidates. And Yeah. So I think, I think we should all continue motivating people to vote and yeah. encouraging people to vote. In another article written by the Stanford Review this week, uh, they, they said that Donald Trump is aided and embedded by campus liberals. And they wrote about how the... Frontrunner in the Republican Party is is just a result of a backlash against the current liberal political culture of shaming people for their way of life. And I think it was an interesting article to read in the review because the review, as the conservative publication for Stanford, has consistently been pretty anti-Trump. It's part of the like never Trump coalition in the Republican Party. Um, but their founder and huge donor, current donor to their publication, Peter Thiel, he's the founder of PayPal. Yeah, like, big guy. I mean, he just came out in support of Trump. He's, he's, he's going to be a delegate. He's now Trump. a Trump delegate, Trump and supporter. So, so. so I think that's interesting that their tone has changed and that they've published an article now that doesn't criticize Trump at all. If anything, it criticizes the people who are against Trump. And to be clear, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of Trump supporters have indeed been angered by political correctness across college campuses, whatever that means. But there are much larger issues at play that can be, that you can attribute the rise of Trump to. You know, there's economic anxiety among the middle class. And racial anxiety. I think think the reasons for supporting Trump are not... Uh, to be blamed on liberals. I think it's probably to be blamed on the people who are supporting Trump. But the article doesn't do that. It blames it blames the people that the supporters are reacting to. And so, uh, so I think that's that's interesting. Yeah. I um, think that just about wraps up our coverage for this week. Um, again, stay tuned for Caleb's interview with John Lancaster Finley and Brennan Hill, the uh, exiting ASSU executives um, for their comments on their time serving uh, as the head of the ACSU. So, thanks. Hello, I am here today with the ASSU execs from 2015 to 2016, uh, John Lancaster Finley and Brandon Hill. Hi, guys. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for um, this yeah, no, we're so excited to have you and just hear a little bit about what your term was like um, for you guys, really. Um, and so my first question is um, kind of what was what was the hardest part of your term? Just start off with a really difficult one. <laughs> wow, okay. What was the hardest part Starting of out negative, your term? Right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll end on the positive. That's good. Got That's it. Good. Sounds like a plan. Yes. Um, to jump in really quickly first, mm-hmm. I think one of the most challenging things, I don't know if I'd quite call it difficult or hard, one of the most challenging things about being in this role is that there's not really a handbook for how you do ASSU, um, and there's even less of a handbook on how you do the ASSU president-vice president role. Um, you know, we have the ASSU constitution and governing documents, bylaws, and whatnot that give um, pretty strong guidance to the members of the legislative bodies and elsewhere in the ASSU on what their job is and what they're supposed to do. Um, all the ASSU constitution says about the ASSU president and vice president is that we are the chief liaison between the ASSU and the university itself. Um, and then it also details specific roles, um, like Brandon, the vice president, being the president of the Senate, um, and representing on the graduate student council. So these are these are things that it's it spells out in the Constitution, but it's like pretty, I don't know, it's pretty difficult to kind of maneuver how to how to figure out what exactly your role is. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. Um, to answer the question, yeah, it's a hard question. There's. I think I'm going to take a different take. One thing has been that has been interesting, as John said, we're the chief liaisons between the university and the um, administration and the students. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you zoom in closer, there's actually a lot of different constituents. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different stakeholders on any given issue. But, you know, just 
For example, you have faculty, you have students, you have different communities within the, you have graduate students and undergraduate students. People don't often recognize that, right? right. We're actually working with both undergraduates and graduates. We're and different with, communities within each Within each of those populations, exactly. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with um, upper-level administrators, right? Like the Hennessy's, oh, I mean the Echemendi's, the, you know, Greg Boardman's. We're also dealing with, like, you know, um, you know, people that are, have closer contact with students. And the thing is, for each different population, each different stakeholder, um, you kind of have to speak in a different language. You have to learn how to kind of code switch, almost. Um, political code switching or translation. Like, you keep one single message, but um, you tailor it to who you're talking to. And so... Um, you know that that's something that we kind of had to learn on the learn on the fly um, in order to get things done. And then I think another thing that has been challenging in like a different way is it's almost kind of selfish, but it's like a lot of the things that we worked on that we were able to break ground on are long term issues, right? Mm -hmm. And we knew that coming into them, but they're issues like um, you know getting Provost Hachimendi and President Hennessy to establish an unnamed committee on naming, right? To look at who are we naming our buildings after and why, right? Interrogating um, Stanford's history is not a, right. you know, a couple-month task. So. It's, it's not. It's not like they were going to deliver a name change, like, tomorrow. And so this is, like, um, and also with the new faculty senate resolution on um, mandatory sexual um, assault prevention and risk of violence prevention education, mm -hmm. you know, these are the type of things that are actually going to ideally manifest several years from now. And so it's kind of a challenge for us to know, like, we're grateful to be able to be a part of these conversations and actually make impact in starting starting some of these initiatives, but kind of like letting go, you know, like we're, right. we won't see the fruits of these things while we're here because literally they're kicking us out in three weeks. <laughs> so. Yes, yes. Um, well, I mean, something I heard both of you guys sort of mention in that question was this relationship you've had to have with the administration and, mm -hmm. and um, how you've had to kind of come into that. And, you know, as you said, there's no handbook for it. So um, how, how was that transition for you guys? How was just jumping right in and starting conversations with them, especially with, I know someone you were close with is Etchmendi. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder how was that for you guys? Right. So I think the first thing I'll say is that it was, it was difficult knowing exactly how to approach different conversations with members of the administration, because the ASSU is actually its own independent 501c3 nonprofit, right? So there, there's that. We are independent from the university, and as ASSU president and vice president, we don't work for Stanford. We work for the ASSU, and we represent the students of Stanford University. Yeah, we don't represent the administration. Right, and so when, when we walk in and are you know negotiating on any given issue or trying to bring something to the attention of the administrators, that's already a default like barrier, is that we don't work for Stanford. Mm -hmm. And just most of the other people who are involved in decisions about governing the university do work for the university itself. Yeah, we're, we're students who are at the university. Um, and so I think one of the reasons, for, first of all, we already mentioned that a lot of different segments of the administration have different priorities and different uh, responsibilities as far as carrying out the educational mission of the university goes. Um, but for us, we would come in with one thing on our minds, right? Where we, we were asking for one particular thing. Now, we covered a whole bunch of different issues throughout our term. Whenever we were talking with a member of the university administration, we always had one thing. We're like, we need to talk about, for example, getting a community center for students with disabilities, because that's something that people approached us about and had wanted. And we're like, all right, well, let us, let us communicate that to the higher ups then and say, this is the thing we need. Now, the university has a million things that they're thinking about when they hear that kind of, what to us sounds like a simple ask. And they're thinking about liability. They're thinking about the, where the money's going to come from to pay for it. And they have to think Proper about all these, space. right, they have to think about all these space. different concerns. And that's why, you know, I hear a lot of people who work for Stanford say that changing this institution is like trying to turn a cruise ship. You know, you can't just turn it around. Um, you, have, you have to really work at it, and it takes a long time. Um, I think when it comes to Provost Echemendi, he was one of the first administrators we met with, actually, when our, when our term began. Um, and because we, after, right after we were elected, there was an email exchange that was very, very public on the diaspora email list. You know, we're both black and we're heavily active in the black community. And so we saw all this and there was a heated email exchange between Provost Echemendi and students who had been involved in campus activism over the past year. And it was pretty intense. And most students are saying, well, who is Provost Echemendi, <laughs> right? We haven't really seen him since new student orientation, so students weren't sure who he was. And then we were about to go into a meeting with him, and we're like, oh, okay, so we need to talk about this right off the bat. And I think when we were elected in such a heated climate, there was so much going on at the university. This is really a time of intense challenge for Stanford right now, and intense transition as well as we move into a new era of leadership for the university. 
Um, it just started that way, where everything was at the, you know, there were high stakes to every conversation we were having. And so I think our relationship with the provost began that way. Now, I will say, I think the provost absolutely has, first of all, an incredible amount of passion to see Stanford be the best that it can possibly be. And he's put in so much work, effort, and leadership in that regard over the past 15 years that he's been leading this university. And for us, as undergraduate students, right, just being here for four years, we operate on a shorter timeline. And some of the things that happened, you know, prior to when we arrived, or even prior to when we took on our term, we don't know about. And the things that are going to be going on when we leave, we still don't know about. So that, that, there's a little bit of a gap in terms of the way we view Stanford. Um, and I think that contributed to some of the... There, there was certainly friction at times between us and the provost in terms of trying to, same, to get on the same page about the initiatives we were working on. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, echoing what John is saying, mm-hmm. I think that Provost Hachimendi and along with President Hennessy actually have been um, the most productive president-provost pair in Stanford's history. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the best in the history of any university, even. They've, yeah, they've, they've, been... they've done a hell of a lot. Um, and so where there was friction, I think that it's just, it's not a difference of, um, not necessarily of intentions, but sometimes it's a difference of language, as I was saying earlier, right? Um, or it's a difference in timeline, right? Um, we have a, you know, a shorter timeline, um, you know? <clears throat> and so uh, I think those are some of the challenges in leadership, but I think that um, at the end of the day, uh, it's actually been the provost alongside, you know, a number of other members of the steering committee of the faculty senate, um, along whom he serves, um, and some other people were, were actually key in um, delivering on some of the on some of the proposals that we actually had uh, proposed. Mm-hmm. So, so I think, yeah. So, I mean, I think that friction, tension, collaboration are all kind of like necessary raw materials in this thing that we call collaboration, right. um, and that's what we've come to learn. Um, come to appreciate, and um, it's definitely something that we'll carry um, forward. This is definitely not going to be our first rodeo um, in public leadership. Right, right. Um, Well, I guess my question going off of that a little bit is, was there anything that you guys really wished you could have gotten through that kind of didn't work because you couldn't speak the same language as the university or or because of that friction? Um, Was there anything that, that was almost there and then that just couldn't make it work? There wasn't anything long-term, because any time that we weren't quite, the angle that we were going at wasn't quite working, we readjusted, right, and tried to figure out how can we get this to work, and how can we sell our point to a way that it makes sense for other people to get on board with. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, and so I, I'm going to tell two stories. The first is kind of the first time we really, you know, butted heads, if you will, with Provost Echemendi, which is when, in the release of the new student Title IX process, um, when we got elected, it was right after the Provost Task Force on Sexual Assault recommendations had been released. And so, because we weren't involved in the conversation about developing those recommendations, obviously Elizabeth Woodson last year chaired, uh, helped co-chair the committee, um, we weren't involved in the development of those, so we saw our role as trying to see for the implementation of those recommendations. And, you know, an entire summer passed, a lot of months passed in, in the time between spring, and then uh, I think it was about in October of fall quarter, and we were saying, okay, when does this stuff get implemented? Because there's not really a timeline on here. It just says there's supposed to be this committee form that's going to implement all of these things, and there should be a new adjudication process and all that. So that's what our meetings with the provost were about in fall was, okay, when do things start happening was kind of our position. And I'm sure his position was, oh, plenty of things are already happening. The confidential support team is up and running. And we were saying, well, we've heard that there's only one person working that office, or however, at the time it was a limited staff. I don't remember if it was exactly one. Mm -hmm. Um, But we we were hearing things from students having concerns, and we were relaying those to the provost, who was then echoing to us all the things the university was doing right. And we are like, okay, well, that's helpful, but then what do we tell the people who have asked a specific question about this specific thing? And one of the things that he said to us was that a new adjudication process document would be coming out soon. And he said soon, and we're like, okay, how soon? And he said, next couple of days soon. And then it got delayed, and then it got delayed, and then it got delayed. Now, it's not that we were sitting there blaming anybody in the university for the fact that this thing hadn't come out yet. One of the things we learned was that they just operate on a slower timeline. And trying to get things out of legal, for example, takes a long time. Mm -hmm. And yet we're of a social media generation, right? We kind of just want a tweet about what is happening, and we can be like, oh, good, we know that's going on. Great, let me move on to tomorrow's tweet. You know, Um, And the university doesn't really operate that way. They they share... Uh, a large, a large document, right? A lot of pages in one fell swoop, and I'm like, read through this and provide feedback. Not, oh, here's here's our you know weekly update on what we're doing, 
And so that was challenging for us, I think. We, we grew a little impatient because we, we weren't seeing the progress that we wanted to see. And then it all came at, at once. You know, we're like, oh, wow, this is a lot of information. Um, one of the other things, I think, regarding Provost Etchemendi in particular, um, and how we, it, it wasn't that we felt, actually, no, not, let, me, let me take that back. Um, one of the things involving something that we wanted to push to the university that didn't end up happening, actually, um, we, we, and I'm, I'm happy to publicly share this, we wrote a letter to the Board of Trustees, or to the Presidential Search Committee, actually nominating a particular candidate. We nominated Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Harry Elam, to be the next president of Stanford University. Mm -hmm. We thought not only did Harry Elam have an understanding of the diversity of the student body here, and him, you know, being African American, being a black man, leading a major university in the world, we thought it was a huge step, just nationally and internationally, right? Huge progress for human civilization would be a black man leading this university. But we also thought that Harry Elam understood deeply the students of this university. And so in our representative role as students, we were like, well, who better to understand the students than the person who we've seen doing it the past four years? The Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, who we, we think back to NSO, the first person you see almost when you come to Stanford, and the, and the person you remember is Harry Elam and his welcoming speech to you. Um, and so that was our nomination, and obviously that's that's not what ended up happening. And I think at the time we felt a little bit like it was like, oh, I don't even know if they they acknowledged that we had written this thing. If 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 our support for Vice Provost Elam, and I know a lot of other students when we hosted when we helped host the town hall with the presidential search committee, the number one issue that students communicated was that they wanted somebody who was of a diverse background to be leading this university. And that obviously isn't what happened. And the Stanford Political Journal wrote about that. Um, and that was disappointing because it was just like, wow, we, we thought we were so loud and clear about that. And that's not what happened. It's not, any, it's not to suggest that the, the president who was chosen, Mark Tessie Levine, is not qualified or not going to be an incredible president. That's not it at all. It was about what we had already said and whether it was listened to. Um, and so that was a little disheartening, I think. Yeah. No, I would definitely say that <clears throat> I think, yeah, I think there's two things. And I think that's – I think they both – involve the um, board of trustees <coughs> and I think that's a place typically that um, I don't think that there's been much ASSU interaction with the board of trustees so I think that's kind of been a new frontier for us and I think maybe that's also a recommendation or like a, a suggestion for future ASSU leaders is well and for the board yeah, itself for the board yeah, to, no, to interact exactly no for sure um so one there is the 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 new Stanford president right um it's not to say that Tessier Levine is unfit for the job. Um, I'm sure he's a qualified individual. Um, it was just the simple fact that there was an opportunity for a diverse candidate. We particularly um, lifted up Harry, Professor Harry Elam's name, um, but there's, you know, and we think he's fabulous, but there's other, there's also um, women, right? There, there are particular, there's like women faculty members, you know, mm -hmm. like you have Patty Gumport, you have Persis Drell, you have a number of different people at this university who are in-house, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even Patty and um, we, Harry... We would have been equally excited. Right, no, I mean, you know? Patty and Harry respectively run the best graduate and undergraduate programs in the entire planet, right? <laughs> and so why, where, where else to look than, you know, right here at Stanford um, and could have really made a dent in Silicon Valley, which we know is hyper-male, hyper-masculine, hyper, you know, um, already. Um, so that could have been a... That could have been a, a, really, a really awesome opportunity. So I think that... But then there's also the question of... Uh, divestment from fossil fuels um, and the fossil free state. Yeah, I forgot movement. about that. Right. And, <laughs> I've forgotten. Uh, we're still mad about that. No, yeah. No, climate change is real. <laughs> it, it's about to get really hot really soon. Yeah. So, and and that's the thing. That's, and that's, we have, John and I have been huge supporters um, of the movement. Like we've, we spoke at, you know, several rallies um, outside of, you know, in fact, outside of President Hennessy's office. Yep, um, with a megaphone. They give us a megaphone. It was exciting. <laughs> gave two black men megaphones in front of Burlington. <laughs> But, uh, you know, and, and we support the movement all the way. We spoke at No Tomorrow when Al Gore came, right? Um, we hosted stories of sustainability. And we spoke, at that, we spoke at that event right after we had delivered a letter to the Board of Trustees in support of fossil fuel divestment. So this right. was another time that I was just like, oh, And we okay. just got done. We just wrote an op-ed. Um, us and the new ASSU execs, Jackson um, Hart and Amanda Elliman. And so, so yeah, um, you know, to the um, to the campus community at large, especially the board of trustees, um, asking for divestment or expressing our disappointment for um, their unwillingness to divest fully, and 
that's a huge <clears throat> issue, right? Um, and that's something that we definitely want to see some movement on and that really we're on a short timeline for. And um, quite frankly, that was part of our agenda when we talk about sustainability. Yeah. That's one of the things that we ran on. Um, and I think we were able to accomplish pretty much everything else. Right. Um, that, that just didn't happen. And I think we're, we're able can. to raise awareness. That's yeah. the thing. We're able to speak, right? Um, at some point, though, one of the another strain, another kind of like thread of our time in office has been this balance between, and often this tension between conversation and action, right? Like, when do you stop talking and start doing, right? <laughs> that's that's I mean that's that's a question that we've had, and we can talk a lot about some of these issues. I said sometimes the, we changing the university is like turning the cruise ship, but a lot of the time they're just talking about the idea of turning the cruise ship and don't even begin to turn it. Which it's like <laughs> we know it's going to take a long time to turn, so we might as well start doing it. But. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Um, well, okay, so going off of that, I want to shift a little bit and talk about um, now your relationship with the students a little bit more because we've mm -hmm. talked about the administration and particularly one of the groups I know you guys have to work the closest with, you had to work the closest with, was the undergraduate Senate. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm sort of wondering what you feel like your relationship with the Senate was while you guys were in office, so to say, mm -hmm. um, and and how you felt that went and, and whether or not the, the Senate gave you the same kind of problems or um, you met with the same resistance or if it was like, if it, you felt like the Senate was the place to be. Um, so if you guys have any thoughts on that. Well, let me first talk about the Graduate Student Council, okay. because I think our relationship with them was equally, if not more important than our relationship with the Undergraduate Senate. And the reason I say that is because members of the Graduate Student Council had been here for so long <laughs> doing, doing this work, doing advocacy work on behalf of graduate students for many years, and you know, a lot of them here longer than we have ever been here. They right? take this very seriously. The graduate <laughs> students is why. And yeah. they're great. They're great. We, we developed a very, very close relationship with the Graduate Student Council, um, particularly with the chair of the Graduate Student Council, Gabe Rodriguez, as well as the financial officer, Sam Bidlon, who ended up, you know, being our partner in a lot of the, a lot of the issues we ended up working on. And, you know, Sam and Gabe were just so thoughtful about every single issue mm -hmm. that we brought to them. And our, our relationship with the Graduate Student Council was almost like, we bring this out there left field idea. And the Graduate Student Council would be like, all right, let's figure out a let's way. Figure out a way to do this to actually make your left field idea happen. And we're like, <laughs> wow, that's now. that's really great. And so that was, I think, honestly, the reason, the main reason we were able to get so much done is because we worked with graduate students in developing our ideas and developing our proposals to the university. Because graduate students are obviously very, very qualified and capable to develop proposals to university, to faculty, like to do that kind of work. They are convincing in selling, in selling ideas, in doing research, and thinking thoughtfully and critically about different issues and ideas. And our relationship with the Graduate Student Council was just incredible. Yeah, it's, it's a, I think the politics at the graduate student level are a lot different mm -hmm. um, than at the undergraduate student, um, you know, undergraduate level. So, no, I think it's, it's interesting, <laughs> our relationship with the Senate. Um, Brandon went to the Senate meetings. So. Yeah, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I went to the GSC meetings and he went to the Senate meetings. No, I mean, I think that our relationship with the Senate has been up and down, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think definitely at the beginning of our term, and, you know, quite frankly, we also have to rec uh, realize that the past Senate, the 16th undergraduate Senate, right? The 16th undergraduate Senate was mm -hmm. elected when we were elected, which mm -hmm. was after a year of a lot of political activists kind of, there's a lot of activity going on on campus, right? You have Stand With Leah, you know, and protesting sexual violence on campus. You have Black Lives Matter. You have the um, Stanford 68 blocking, right, the San Mateo Bridge. You have yeah, Fossil Free fossil this whole, that free, whole time. Always. And Fossil Free is always there and, and actually interconnects a lot of these um, different yeah. groups, which I really um, am, uh, admire them for. Um, you have a lot of different stuff going on. And and then also there was a debate around SOC, right? And then that was the context right, um, in which we were elected. Yeah, the, the divestment, right? Yeah, divestment enormous. happened, right? Um, well, divestment didn't happen, but the divestment conversation happened. Of course, divestment <laughs> had shorthand for the divestment <laughs> conversation, right? Um, and the vote. So that was the context for our election and the Senate's election. So I actually had no idea what was going to happen with that Senate. Um, it turned out that that Senate was a lot chiller than I thought. Um, they were going to be. I thought it was going to be a lot of fireworks every Senate meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of quite the opposite, to be honest. Um, yeah, a lot of no update, no report. A lot of that. Right. And, but the thing is, there was a couple things the Senate did support us on. Um, one, when we had an intention of bringing John Legend to campus, um, we were bringing him. We were going to bring him to campus for kind of a speech, a little concert, and I think we were planning on giving 
um, a State of the Union address attached along with it, and it was about to be a really cool event. Yeah, he and had he, a baby, so it didn't, it didn't yeah, happen. He was like, that wasn't our fault, but that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I guess we were just ordinary people who didn't care about us. So, oh. Uh, but, uh, there we go. <laughs> but... It, you know, they supported us on that. Um, then there was the whole Father Sarah resolution, right? Or really the resolution to reaffirm, reaffirm Stanford's commitment um, to Native community identity space mm -hmm. um, and history. And, you know, overwhelming support, almost unanimous. Um, there was a VIEW member who decided to vote against it. Um, <laughs> Without even mentioning or saying why he would vote against it, he was the no vote. And it was just like, oh, there were no words that came out of your mouth. But I'm <laughs> glad you're the no vote. That's fine. <laughs> right. So there was that. Um, but I think that, you know, towards... Towards the end, and we could probably go into it more. You know, there was a there's some tensions just between us and um, a couple senators around um, the whole SSC FM CEO um, nomination. Oh, which, we can talk about that that fiasco. But. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, I mean, so that was that, and there was a couple like I don't know, kind of breaches of like confidentiality and like violation of bylaws around that um, that we weren't really appreciative and of. Just pettiness, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> That, that was that. But, I mean, overall, um, I am happy with the new Senate. I think the new I'm excited for the new Senate. Um, a couple of our younger sibs are actually on the new Senate. Yep. Um, and, like, we have relationships. Both live in Ujima. <laughs> <laughs> Mylan and Khaled are little, our little sibs and Brock, and uh -huh. we're yep. really proud of them. And also, the Senate has an incredible chair, Shanta. She's unbelievable, so really excited to see her leadership. Oh, yeah, yeah. I always tell Shanta. She's doing a great job, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and she's already led um, kind of a tough... Uh, already a really tough conversation, right, around, um, you know, providing financial aid for low-income students who are trying to access any organization with, like, fees and dues, and um, she's been supportive of that, and the conversation lasted longer, honestly, than the, the divestment conversation in the Senate. Yep, and she's about uh, as three weeks longer. <laughs> honestly, I'm trying to retire. John and I are trying to retire, and they're trying to keep us out here. <laughs> like, but anyway, so yeah, that's that's kind of, like, our relationship. Okay. Would would you like to give like a like a brief, very broad overview of like um, SSE and the and the CEO? Sure. Because I know that turned into kind of a big deal. Yeah, we're happy uh, to comment on that. Yeah. So let me say first that SSE actually has a long history of having problems with its CEO. Um, there have been you know I, I I and you can you can check this with other people who've been involved with SSE for longer than I have, but I I think something like the past five CEOs have all had some kind of, like, big scandal problem, right? <laughs> now, let me also say that I think that the situation with Frederick Gross, I think, was vastly overblown by campus media. Um, you know, in the, the idea... I, and there, there, all the allegations are out there and detailed and everything, but Fred really did an incredible job of bringing integrity back to the organization, in my opinion, of making the organization run a lot more efficiently, which when SSE is running efficiently, the ASSU is running efficiently because you have people with knowledge, you have people, you know, getting their checks on time, which is the number one thing that students are probably concerned about as it relates to the ASSU is making sure that their check for their student group is there when they need it. And, you, you know, we used to, back my freshman year, there used to be like a two-week turnaround time you know, and trying to get your check cut by SSE. And then when Fred was in charge, it was like three days, which is a huge change. That's a huge difference right. in how student events are able to happen on campus. And Fred and was like a friend to yeah. the ASSU and to the undergraduate student. He would come and provide insight, right? Which was he would great. Come and provide help, you know, whenever you have a question. Like he kept things, he really definitely kept things moving. And he was actually very thorough um, with a lot of things, including the um, financial manager search committee process. Yeah. I will say, I think there were, you know, probably some bad habits still in SSE. And I think that's that's kind of what contributed to you know Fred's Fred's decision to move on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think he did a whole lot to transform that organization. And then it came to a certain point where it's like, all right, it's run its course. Um, and then when the CEO search started, obviously there's what the bylaws details a financial manager selection committee, which consists of the old financial manager, the chair of the board of directors directors of Stanford Student Enterprises, one representative from the undergraduate senate, one representative from the graduate student council, and the president of the ASSU. Now, with that, that had actually never happened in recent institutional memory. This process was always laid out, and it never happened that there was actually a no, search. No, it was baton pass. Yeah, right? it was oh. just they decided who would be the CEO, and that person got to be the CEO. And, you know, people in the ASSU legislative bodies didn't really know a whole lot, so they're just like, okay, I guess this person's the CEO, whatever. Um, I remember when we confirmed Fred, it was just like, okay, we confirmed Fred. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any questions because I don't know what to ask. Mm -hmm. um, and now people know what to ask, right? So... That committee, um, 
one of the this was uh, you know part of our frustration with the undergraduate senate is that their representative actually didn't show up to meetings. <laughs> the representative of the undergraduate senate. So we had to switch things up. Right. So and Brandon became spot. the representative for the undergraduate senate. Now I still had my seat on the committee, and Brandon was now representing the senate. Graduate student council Sam was very very involved in the process. Um, Atik, who was the chair of the Stanford Student Enterprises Board of Directors, he was very, very involved. And then Fred was still very involved. Now, the problem was that Fred was, you know, having all these articles written and stuff like that. And Fred was also trying to move on to his next part of, uh, you know, his career and his life. And we still have to get this search process done. So Fred was helping to manage a lot of the logistical aspect of it. You know, we got something. How many candidates do we get? in the first round. Some, 20-some yeah, candidates, 20 some, uh, candidates applying yeah. for a job that previously was just handed down to somebody. So this was a really exciting Robust, thing. very robust process. You know, we yeah. had three rounds of interviews, interviewed so many people, and that was so many hours of our time, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we got to the third round, and we kind of got down to... The third round had the final three candidates that were all obviously very qualified, which is why they got to the third round. And discussions around who to, who to select, you know, that those discussions and deliberations lasted a long, long time. We ultimately decided that whoever we went with would be a really, really strong choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but we obviously had, and we had disagreements, we had preferences, etc. Um, we all, we, de- we decided we would come out of, of that committee, those committee deliberations, as a consensus. That we would support whoever is, like, decided upon. We would all throw our support behind them. Yep. And so the candidate who was eventually chosen, I'm not going to say their name, even though it's in the Stanford Daily. The bylaws still say that we're not supposed to reveal the name, so I'm not going to say it. You can go look it up because the Stanford Daily decided to print it. Um, but the candidate who was selected, we thought was enormously qualified. Um, they performed very well and throughout the entire interview process. They were also the preference of university administrators and outside directors who were involved in advising the process. Um, people who had a lot of business experience pref- preferred this person, preferred somebody who had been outside of Stanford for a little bit doing something else. Um, and when we put this candidate forward, the graduate student council confirmed them no problem. Um, and then I wasn't at this meeting, so Brandon can talk about that if he, if he wants to, but, and then I heard he just didn't perform well at the undergraduate senate the next week. And then the undergraduate senate started lobbying all these these really ridiculous accusations about conflict of interest, about corruption, um, going to the Stanford Daily to reveal the candidate and, and talk about how they're not complicit in this corruption. Like, that's what the senate was saying. And it's like wow, okay, you guys didn't actually show up to any of the interviews when the entire Senate, not just the one representative, the entire Senate was reached out to to come to the second round of interviews. None of them came. Right, so the, it was kind of like using laziness as like a moral shield uh, in that way. <laughs> Which um, is bizarre. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't really have anything to say about the, the closed session here, but just that, yeah, um, after the candidates' interview with the Senate, it's kind of where things got derailed. Um, yeah. definitely where things got derailed. Um, so we actually, so we've been in a lot of meetings and spent a lot of time like figuring out what to do because that candidate no longer can be put forth yeah. as, you know. Um, Which I'm confident the ACC will get it taken care of, right. you know, sort, sort through it and when it, when it gets figured out, like then it'll be announced and everything will be great. Um, particularly right. because there was, there was, you know, a deep, well, a deep the, bench of candidates. Yeah, we had, we know. had good candidates, right? And so the person that they're, you know, that they're going to, that will end up taking the job will be good for the job and very well qualified for the job. Right. So, um, so that's what we can say about that. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, just a couple of things from that. I mean, you guys talked a little bit about the, the role of the daily in this, but I'm also wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about the role of other campus publications, for example, yeah, which one ones? of the most controversial publications this year, the review mm. and also um, the fountain hopper, because that kind of got started last year, the year right. before. Um, and blew up. I think the Fountain Hopper got a little jealous that the review was occupying their tabloidy space on campus. <laughs> and and kept going. Yeah. I mean, what do you guys think that it did for your term and, and for some of the issues that, that came up while you guys were the exact? I mean, did people really read the review? That was that was the difference between the review and the Fountain Hoppers. I'm not sure how many students read the review. Students sometimes heard that, oh, the review said this controversial thing, and it's like, okay, they kind of exist to say controversial things. It's not, I don't know if it's particularly news. I think the most disappointing thing for me was when the Stanford Daily began to report on stories and accusations that the review or the fountain hopper had laid out and uncovered. Because mm-hmm. um, that to me was like, wow, I want to see the actual, actual journalism at this campus do the journalism. 
um, reporting on tabloids is like not how news organizations <laughs> get their news. Um, saying like, oh, the National Enquirer said this. Like that's you don't see the CNN talking about the National Enquirer reports. Um, no, mostly because I don't think things that were laid out in the Stanford Review, m- more so the Fountain Hopper. I think the Fountain Hopper was usually more accurate. Um, and the, the review, I think the thing that shocked me about review articles is how quickly they would go up. So, I mean, yeah, that was the thing. The review was there. I mean, the review was, I think, of, like, among the campus publications. The most they active. were present. They yeah. were present at Senate meetings. Like, when announcements were made, like, during Senate meetings, they would have an article up. Right, whether or not you like them, which is like people facts are... will be updated when we receive them. <laughs> Here's our story, though. Right, in the meantime, and so I mean, it's like if Fox News was the only organization that was putting out information, and other organizations were reporting on Fox right. News or were several weeks late, like people are going to resort to that. So I definitely think people were actually reading them, um, whether they liked it or not. And I think they uh, they they actually stirred up a lot of conversation, especially when you think about um, Western Civ right. and the amount of debate that that generated. And we firmly believe, like. The, yeah, the, the solid fourteen percent of the student body voted for this. Right, exactly. Right, <laughs> and so, but I mean, they put the information, they put the proposal out there, and students got really upset because I think it was it is an offensive proposal, yeah. and it's just taking us back in time. Um, but yeah, they wouldn't have got yeah they wouldn't have gotten as much airplay as they did had students um, not reacted. To their to credit, it. though, here they are putting out ideas, right, and trying to discuss them and trying to have debate about ideas. So that, that's that's never a bad thing. I happen to disagree with the ideas, but it's always it's always great for people to be, you know, throwing ideas out there. Um, I mean, you can expect a clapback <laughs> to your ideas, <laughs> you know, yes. that'll happen, right? Your right to free speech. And that is what they got. Yeah, your right to free speech does not um, preclude the right to clapback, so. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and overall, do you think so? So, in terms of stirring up conversation, it was a good thing, or no, not a good thing, but I say, <laughs> I want to. I want it's to, a legal thing. I want to <laughs> thank them it. for having ideas and having thoughts. That <laughs> thinking is a good thing. Um, I don't know that you should always vocalize what it is you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. Okay, like I've got like one more hard question, and then we'll go to the fun stuff. Like, what do you enjoy? Um, so that is the hard alcohol ban and mm-hmm. the fooling on the quad controversy. Right. Um, so you know, those were also you guys said a lot of stuff happened during your term. Now that oh, yeah. I'm asking all these questions, mm-hmm. yep. I realize that. Um, so do you guys have any thoughts on that that you, you know, you feel strongly about? Let me first talk about the hard alcohol ban. One hundred percent opposed to the idea of banning hard alcohol on this campus. Um, you know, I've worked for the Office of Alcohol Policy and Education. I'm staff at Cardinal Knights, and I've been Cardinal Knights staff for the past three years now. Um, and one of the things that has impressed me about Stanford is its, appro- is its approach to alcohol education. Um, now, I will say that I think that the culture that we have around alcohol and around drinking would be very, very productive if more people bought into it. Um, I think Stanford's idea of, like, open-door policy, not, it's not a policy, but it's an open-door idea, right, that reflects how we live in our community and our residences. Um, that is hugely important to the way that residents relate with RAs, for example. Mm-hmm. If you're worried that, if I was worried that my RA was going to come in and confiscate my alcohol if I was under 21, I'm not trusting my RA, I'm not going to my RA with my concerns, even if I'm concerned about my own drinking. For example, is my RA now a trusted source I can go to? No, you don't go to the police for mental health resources, you know? And that's transitioning the role of the RA into something that I have seen at other universities, which is like dorm police. And I don't happen to believe that that's an effective model for governing a community, for having community values. I think the effective model is actually what Stanford had, but wasn't quite being implemented effectively enough. And you also have a problem with severe mental health issues at this university. Um, and in our generation, even. And I think that that contributes to binge drinking, to alcohol issues, to alcohol abuse. Um, and it's not so much how Stanford tolerates alcohol as much as it is how stressed students are. And maybe if students were less stressed, they wouldn't be binge drinking as much, as opposed to, oh, we removed the alcohol, now what are students going to do without addressing the fundamental problems that are facing university students at this time? So that, that's my stance on the hard alcohol ban. I think it would be a disaster um, and I don't think I don't think it's the right policy for Stanford to pursue. Yeah, um, regarding how hard alcohol, I, I definitely um, I definitely echo that. And you know, when you talk with, there's actually people who are in residential education who are also right against the hard alcohol ban. When you think about you know um, 
this we're in college. <laughs> I, I just don't think it's realistic to actually enforce prohibition right now. Prohibition didn't work last time, either. right? Exactly, <laughs> right? So why 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 bring it back? Um, the thing is, I think it's a. This is the space. If there was a space to learn how to drink, um, it would be here. When you have the mental health resources, when you have the alcohol resources, when you have OAPE, when you have um, staff who are trained, um, and so this is this is the time for it to happen. And Stanford students want to have fun, you know. Um, students in general and need to have, have fun. fun. And they they we have to. I mean, they have us <laughs> have us work hard. We got to play hard, um, which will lead us to my you know position on full moon. Um, but. What happens if you take away, take the alcohol away? And how does that impact students at a deep level, but also how does it affect the, the wider ecosystem? I just don't think um, it's wise right now. Um, and it's not necessarily solving the problem because it also, it also, part of this is wrapped up in the conversation around sexual violence and sexual assault. And it's a question of um, what is causing sexual assault, sexual violence, right? Is it alcohol or is it rapists, right? Oh, it's the alcohol. We need to punish the alcohol, right? We need to take the alcohol away, right? And it might be scapegoating or it might be distracting from the actual issue at hand. And victim right? blaming also. Right. It's, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's a victim blaming activity uh -huh. um, or it could be read as victim blaming. And so we need to be careful of that. Um, so I think, I think those, that's, those are mainly my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I, don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a wise policy. Mm -hmm. And to follow a little bit. I'll share your thoughts on full moon. <laughs> sure. So for me... Every year that I've gone to Full Moon, in my experience, so like the thing about Full Moon is it has evolved a lot over time from, you know, its original construction is like the giving of the rose. Um, I know, you know, um, you know, senior to freshman exchange, um, what, what's kind of like romantically painted as like a very classy experience. And now it's like a kind of like an outdoor, massive outdoor party, thousands of people like music. It's really ballooned into a huge experience. Um, but still a tradition um, of Stanford. And I think it's in many ways, because I helped, um, you know, as one of the sophomore class presidents, I helped with Full Moon on the Quad, mm -hmm. um, our sophomore year, actually, um, in executing the event. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways, I think that um, the best elements of Full Moon on the Quad are very representative of Stanford culture, right? The quirkiness, the fun, you know, kind of the weirdness, um, the, the color, right? Just like it's a very... It's like it's a very unusual event that a lot of people take part in, and Stanford is a very unusual, or at least the undergraduate experience here is a very oh, unusual. Wacky like the band, uh, yeah, it's wacky <laughs> in many ways, right? So, I think that you know the question of should Full Moon continue as it currently is. Um, I think that you know I don't. I've enjoyed it every year that I've been here, um, and I think a lot of students also enjoy it. Um, the question around, um, you know sexual unwanted sexual contact that happens at full one on the quad um is never acceptable and is never tolerable and so that is something that we should definitely look at mm -hmm. um i think that that type of activity happens all across the university in a number of different ways public and private um you know whether it's houses on the row whether it's um you know in dorm rooms whether it's in in public you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of situations and so I think it's a question of, is there a way to either um, fix this tradition or um, build something new in its place? But I think to strip Full Moon of the Quad, just just to remove it and not put anything in its place, almost like the hard alcohol ban is not getting at the actual root of the issue, mm -hmm. um, and remove something that is actually very, what a lot of people perceive to be uh, central to the Stanford undergraduate experience mm -hmm. um so i think those are my thoughts mm -hmm. yeah um so to kind of wrap up i know we've we've gone we've gone we've covered a lot <laughs> um, which is great um let me just also say i don't yeah. have anything to say about full moon quad okay yeah. <laughs> I don't care about it. Wait, wait, for the record. For the record. For the record, has, you, just has so anybody you know. ever heard John Lancaster say he's never had any comment? <laughs> that's like, that's as historic as Eric Wilson it's saying nice. that is one of the last uh, undergraduate cinema. And we got it on tape. We yeah, did it. Full Moon on the Quad. I, I think as, a, as, a, as an... Oh, now I mean, he does have Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, 
if we're looking for an event that celebrates the best of Stanford's values, I think we could probably do better in terms of brainstorming what our values are and an event that celebrates those. However, if students really, really like it, then like, okay, <laughs> we really, really like it and let's have it. Um, you know, I, but the, the yeah, fact... Referendum. Right. I mean, the fact remains, though, that the university is not required to support events that they don't want to support. So if we're worried that we're incapable of putting it on on our own, then perhaps we should rethink its necessity if we don't think we can be trusted to be safe with it. So it, it looks like if the university is not going to support it, then it will go into the hands of the students. And people are saying, well, that's a recipe for disaster. And it's like, well, if it's a recipe <laughs> for disaster, then maybe we shouldn't have the event. But, you know, I'm graduating. I don't care whether we have full moon of the quad next yes. year. Um, I think Stanford students are smart. Sure. <laughs> They're very smart. Well, we might have to see next year. <laughs> um, well, okay. So, so just in general then, um, I know you said at the beginning, there's no... There's no book for how to be the exec, but if there was, and you two had written it, what would be the take-home message for Jackson and Amanda, mm. who are who are taking your place for the next year? What you know? What is your big? Hey guys, this is how you succeed. Mm. One, I think there's a few things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One, I would encourage them to define more, even beyond and above their agendas, right, are the points of their agenda, I would encourage them to identify a true north, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that they really hold true, right, about themselves, about the impact that they want to make? Almost, what is their theory of change, right? Um, Because John and I, we got elected on a platform, right? We ran on a platform, we got elected on it, and we had an initial agenda. Um, But quite frankly, as as we went about kind of trying to accomplish some of the things, we came in contact with students who had uh, interesting ideas to share with us, right? We came across new ideas and we kind of amended our vision as we went. And or rather built on it. Yeah, we yeah, we we built on it, right? And we expanded. We we definitely expanded. And but we still everything was very consistent with um with our morals and with and with uh, the impact that we want to with the change we want to see at Stanford. Because we that's one of the things that we did say is that we want to leave Stanford in better condition. Um then we found it, mm-hmm. right? And I definitely think we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage them to define that for themselves. And that's also, that guiding light will actually help them when you're in conflict, when you're butting heads with different people in the administration. Wow, am I wrong? Like, when you're questioning yourself and things are tough, we no, no, no. But this is in line with my true north, right? Mm-hmm. Our true north. We're going we're gonna to go the path, right? When, you know, it, it, it just helps. I think another thing is, it's helpful to realize that a lot of the really big change that a lot of big change is actually possible in this role, um, but it requires, A, a lot of collaboration across a lot of different people at this university. Like, building consensus is hard, but it's also an intergenerational effort. When I mean a generation, different successive ASSU leadership, in different ASSU governments as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. Um, from 1617 to 1718 and, you know, and, and, and onward, linking these, these efforts together, for example... Um, the recent uh, Faculty Senate resolution uh, proposing mandatory education on sexual um, violence prevention uh, for the entire campus, basically. That's something that John and I have been working on this whole year, and but it's also something that survivors, activists, allies have been working bravely and tirelessly for, for decades. Um, and the previous ASSU president, um, Elizabeth Woodson, who was very key, played an instrumental role in the task force that delivered the recommendations um, I mean, that's what laid the ground for that. That, to be that laid the, the groundwork for this, right? So it was an intergenerational effort. Um, and so having that long view is, is very key, I would say. The last thing that I'll say, <clears throat> and this is you know, to Jackson, Amanda, whoever would want to take on not only our role, but any kind of student leadership role at this university, is that um, people don't always remember everything that you did, or maybe even anything that you did. But the one thing I've noticed from students who talk to us, um, reflect with us about our time in office, is that people will remember what you said about the issue that mattered to them. You know, whether it was on speaking out on sexual violence, on racial intolerance, on environmental degradation, you know, all these, these issues that are the most challenging issues of our time, of our generation, but also people remember what you said on the thing that was most important to them. And so never being afraid to speak out and never letting anybody take away your voice because that's the most powerful thing that you have in this role. Right. I would definitely add to that. 
John is completely right. People will not forget um, that what you say is very meaningful. And they will never forget also how you made them feel, right? Um, I think ideally, I, I, I think even just when we talk with freshmen, when we talk with even graduate students, people send us random emails sometimes about um, how we've actually made them feel a little bit more empowered at this university. And, and that's not to, not to inflate what we've done, but it is actually, um, a lot of people are actually not convinced that student government can, can actually do something, right? I mean, some of our predecessors love them, right? But they brought food trucks to campus, you know, and that was kind of like their legacy, which is fine. You can actually do a lot more and you can actually have material impact on people um, in terms of, um, in, in terms of how they view themselves and, and how they feel. And that's, um, something that we've been very thankful to be able to um, make an impact on during my time in office. Yeah, and I think you guys have made an impact. Um, and I want to thank you guys so much for joining me on this podcast. Um, I think that this was incredibly eye-opening. It was incredible to hear from your perspectives. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, um, thank you. And good luck in after they kick you out in three weeks. <laughs> right? <laughs> Live yeah, it up. About <laughs> yes, yes. So thank you so you much. You don't have to go home, but you got to get <laughs> up out of here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Kayla. Yes. You rock. Thank you, and join us again next week. <laughs>